So just in terms of like David Lynch as a filmmaker, he remains, he's one of the most interesting, I think, uh, filmmakers in terms of like American cinema and particularly in terms of popularity. Um, well, I think I was... Uh, I might ask you to lean in there, Donald, if you don't mind, sorry. I, I was um, thinking there about sort of what compare him to, and it's. I remember reading. I think it's back in Ian McDonald's book on the Beatles. There's this conversation about Revolution Number no. Nine um, on the White Album, which she describes as the the uh, the piece of avant-garde art that is owned by probably more people than the history of avant-garde art. Which I thought was a nice way of putting it. That you have this kind of you know, stream piece of avant-garde art that was on the White Album that was bought by millions, millions of people. And this Lynch perhaps doesn't quite hit those levels, but there's something similar about that in that sense in which well, Pauline Kael I think described him as you know, the, possibly the only popular surrealist. Maybe things have moved on since then. Things have got a bit weirder in terms of mainstream culture since Pauline Kael was writing. But something in that, something in the strange sense that somebody who emerged from the avant-garde, I mean, who could have been at one stage um, put in the same category as Stan Brackage and people like that who made these very difficult works, um, who ended up being kind of part of the mainstream. I mean, a very odd part of the mainstream, but uh, but nonetheless part of it. Yeah. It's astonishing because you read all these retrospectives about Lynch and there's a recurring motif, and I think Matt Sellers-Heitz has sort of summed it up when he talks about Twin Peaks. It's like, how did this become mainstream how did like blue velvet cross over mm. how did twin peaks cross over when you look at stuff like say inland empire and i think this is a nice segue into like we you thought it might be we asked you sort of what you wanted to do because uh, we, we had a vague idea that might be fun to talk about lynch at some point i think you came up with the idea of just sort of ranking the film well i thought from... ranking it's it's i apologize to listeners immediately it's an incredibly lowbrow thing to do is one of the things obviously we all hate about the internet is that uh, everything and, and uh, this is entirely we're gonna fr- go viral donald yeah well, it's yeah. entirely frivolous on my part but it struck me as one uh, uh, worth doing for this reason alone is that you and I can then talk through the ten features, yeah. and you'll notice that I'm saying ten because um, Twin Peaks of Trade is not a film. Well, um, Donald, we have a conversation later on where we will be <laughs> able to hash that out. Spoilers. I saw that. I saw that on the on the schedule. It's uh, well, I mean, you know, honest. I mean, okay, I've, I've, I've started off Donald this row, but yeah. let me give you two sentences. The two sentences on that. I fully understand that media has become much more flexible, and that things on screens are. But, you know, it comes in a number of parts. Um, it's on telly. It's not a film. Um, you may, you could make the argument, as people have made, for example, of individual sections of Kozlovsky's deco- uh, uh, um, oh, Decalogue. Decalogue, that um, individual films can be could, could possibly be um, uh, regarded as features. Even then, they're a bit short for my taste. Yeah. But anyway... I'll let you leave that to you later on in the <laughs> evening, <laughs> for the for the purposes of of uh, my cheap and lowbrow um, uh, ranking. Making. We're going with ten features. And before we get into it, the one thing I would say, I mean, I, I think I say I think it's, it's worth doing for, for fun, if nothing else, because we enjoy arguing about these things. But also, it gives you and I an opportunity to talk through all ten yeah. films. I think yeah. that's that. You know, that's, that's a way that's, to do it. Yeah. To do it. Uh, and before we start, one thing I thought was. I mean, I've always been a great enthusiast for, for Lynch, as I'm sure everyone around this table will be. Um, but I was impressed by looking at Ten because there's only really one that I would say, which we're going to we're going to oh. do in a minute. Which was, <laughs> <laughs> was that, warning. <laughs> no, no, is it going to be a hot take or? I uh, know. Uh, I think probably. I think actually, probably, we get to number ten. I think you'll probably find that it, that, that no spoiler is required. <laughs> but there's only one film I would say that this doesn't really come off. You know, I mean, yeah. of the other nine um, that we're going to go through, and I would think we get down to four. We're talking about four of the greatest films in American cinema, I think, of the last century. Okay. Do you want me to begin? Let's begin. Um, I have a, have a guess, by the way. I have, well, I have a feeling it? that your, your, your number <laughs> 10 is going to surprise Andrew. I'm wondering if we should get it out of the way before he gets back. Is it Dune? It is Dune, <laughs> yes. Uh, there could be two or three that are kind of like... But, but yeah, I mean, it's... Um, which is one of the the films that is the least like one of his own films. I'll get to another one, which is another candidate down further down the list. But um, which came at a very peculiar, I mean, peculiar point in his career when he had had there were two films behind him, one of which was Eraserhead, uh, the other which was um, The Elephant Man. And so people thought, well, who is this person? Who is this guy? This guy's crawled up from. You know, Philadelphia, this avant-garde film, which became a genuine cult hit, uh, and then made this film, which got nominated for eight, eight Oscars, um, and somehow found himself uh, uh, doing this. Um, like all huge financial disasters, it has 
cranks who think it's a masterpiece. <laughs> if there's anyone One around of me, them will probably be coming back into this room right shortly. I mean that the most affectionate possible way. If any of those cranks were here, I'd be quite happy to debate them. And and and, and I'm sure they would take crank as, a, as in some sense, kind of a, a, a backhanded a compliment. Honor, yeah. um, it does have Lynchian traits to it. Um, we should. I, I, I don't need to say that this is, of course, the adaptation of Frank Herbert's uh, yeah. sounds about right yeah. um, science fiction novel, which spawned a bunch of of sequels, um, uh, and was always on the point of being made. Um, and Dina De Laurentiis, who was an unlikely um, collaborator with, um, with Lynch, Lynch yeah, in the early days, like, yeah. Um, you the know, man responsible for Flash Gordon. I yeah, I, I mean, I, well, I, I met him. Uh, I met him when he. Um, when uh, Hannibal Rising, do I have that right? When the, the almost completely forgotten, yes, no. and quite rightly, <laughs> yeah. uh, perhaps came out. And he was, and, and like as you wouldn't be surprised to hear, as the thing with producers is what they do. He was incredibly charming. I mean, like you know, that I came in and said a cold Mr. Mr. Laurentiis because obviously he was a man yeah. in his eighties, probably by that stage, certainly late seventies. Said, "Oh no, no, I am the one," you know. So he charmed Lynch into making this this adaptation of Dune. Um, it has Lynchian elements to it. There's no question about the sense that. Of industry and those yes, like oppressive design. That's right. I mean, like you know, I mean, I, I'm sure kind of the very notion of the the worms, the giant worms, were part of the thing which suggested to Laurentiis <laughs> it might be <laughs> might suit Lynch. Um, but I, I mean, I think. So it has its moments, and it's not a disaster. It was a financial disaster, but I don't think it's not a disaster in narrative terms totally. Um, uh, remembered, unfortunately, for you know, Sting and his underpants and certain other <laughs> unfortunate aspects. It doesn't really come off, and most crucially in this list, what lets it down is it doesn't, it feels the least like a David Lynch um, film. Uh, also, it had become part of a conversation which which started before it and will be continuing until, I would suspect, autumn of next year um, about other versions of Dune. Yeah. Obviously, the Jodorowsky version of Dune. Which, which never spawned, materialized. Never materialized and spawned a great documentary um, uh, which played um, uh, at um, Director's Fortnight in Cannes a few years back. Um, Jodorowsky's Dune. Has, that sort of started a conversation. That was the one we, need, we needed and we'll see next year if Denis Villeneuve's Dune can uh, measure up. Can measure up to either, either our notion of Jodorowsky <laughs> Or, or the reality of, of uh, David Lynch. One. All right, so that's your lowest ranked Lynch film. Yes, oh. and I say the only one. So don't shout at me about <laughs> any of these being too low. Because I, I mean, I think all yeah. the rest of these nine <laughs> films have have, have, have virtues, have great virtues to them. Right, at number nine, want to guess? <laughs> <laughs> this could take a while. Uh, oh, you one guess. We're not going to. Okay, answer. is it the straight story? No, it's not. Oh, it's okay, Twin Peaks: Fire Walk with Me, oh. which is um, uh, an interesting one historically. In that um, uh, it was a sort of a near total switcheroo critically on this, and it came out. It played in played in Cannes. It was in, in the Cannes competition. It got mostly poor reviews. People were th- were mostly asking the question why he was bothering to do it. And I think that one thing which does remind me of a lot of what I'm going to talk about here is because I'm older than some listeners. <laughs> I remember when all these films came out. Um, though I, well, possibly on Eraserhead, which I was obviously much too, too young to go and see, but I can remember it existing when it came out. Is the one that I think forgot forgot about or didn't know about in the conversation that came out before the return came out was in my view the second series of Twin Peaks is kind of terrible I mean it sort of it slops off in the first three episodes and I remember very well everyone just sort of it felt like dominoes yeah. people were when you, when you went to the pubs here no I stopped watching it at three I stopped watching it at four I kind of struggled on through and I, I actually thought the second part of Twin Peaks second half second series of Twin Peaks was largely um, a failure and that was the general consensus so I was surprised when it came around to conversations about the return they seemed to have forgotten this there's <laughs> this like, oh, those classic series that classics that no one much liked after a, a well, series and a half I think you can sort of take like because Lynch and Frost are both absent from a large part of that now I yeah. know they're around for the oh, early sure, parts you're talking about but yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But uh, and certainly yes, you're quite right. A lot of people. Um, Diane Keaton directed an episode, yeah. the second <laughs> series. I remember. Anyway, the point I was getting to there Billy was Zane, was I think I think Fire Walk with Me, which people might may forget, got caught up in that kind of conversation. And the notion was like, here's a series that kind of started off as an amazing phenomenon, died off, became a bit kind of crappy, and then kind of had a bit of a flutter at the end when we got the solution. Why is he going back to that? And that probably I think queered people to it a little bit. Um, in the years since, its reputation has grown, and I, th- I think it does still feel like a, uh, 
uh, something that's been bolted on to a previous project um, uh, in a way that the return doesn't, which feels like a total revitalization of that project. But it's still got great things in it, and it's got a really effective shape. Um, uh, it's got less humor in it than most of the rest of Twin yeah. Peaks, however dark it may be, but still got some of that kind of invidious humor. Really quite scary, I think, in a way, in a, in a kind of explicit horror fashion that um, uh, m- m- much of, Lin- of Lynch's work doesn't have. And David Bowie, of course, <laughs> which we should mention. But uh, no, I think it's interesting, that, and it is one of those films that uh, that I think its its critical reinvention is almost total. I think you know people do no longer snort when it's mentioned, and rightly so, because there are great things in it. Yeah, I think I think you were mentioning the the Kermode kind of video essay on it as yeah, well. Yeah, yes. Mark Kermode's like a big fan. fan. He's sort of been boosting it as well. We tweeted that out earlier, so it'll be in the feed. But yeah, there's a lot of like I quite like that reappraisal sort of happened. And it's interesting that you should describe like Firewalk with Me as bolted on and the return feeling like an extension. It almost feels like Firewalk with Me being, if you want to describe it as bolted on, meant that the extension could kind of not the extension, the return could almost be sort of extended from that or yeah. an extension of that. Like well, it, it gave him sort of leeway because it's. I'd argue it's more stylistically ind- indicative of where the return goes than. Yes, I see speak. what you mean. Yeah, that, that, that's that's that, that's true. But I mean, there's so so much time has passed that it's very hard to kind of make that connection direct. I mean, it. I mean, time itself kind of inter- intervenes in that. But yeah, it's true that the tone of it certainly is closer to where we begin yeah. when we begin again with, with with return though i would say the return is more explicitly comical from in yes. a oh, yeah, in a malign way um um from from from, from the get go but um you know but i mean i, I wouldn't even say twin peaks for Walk it even counts as an underrated film anymore because people it is not taken seriously in a way that it wasn't in 1992. And it's amazing so much of the sort of build up to the return was articles about how Firewalk With Me needed to be reappraised. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, well, I mean, yeah. Yeah. it's true to an extent. I mean, like, you know, no one's going to confuse it with, you know, Pretty Woman yeah. in the same sort of era. <laughs> yeah. It isn't at that level of popularity. But among people who, who pay attention to David Lynch, I think it's no longer kind of, you know, that uh, um, any, any sort of embarrassment. Um, and then number eight. Number eight might be slightly controversial, which, which I think Ooh. is a film whose reputation has slipped a little. Um, at number eight, I put Wild at Heart. Um, uh, and I can remember 1990. It was, I mean, we, we talked about this. We mentioned this earlier just a few few minutes ago and talking about this strange phenomenon of David Lynch. Uh, and 1990, I mean, it was an <laughs> uncertain time in the world. I mean, we you know, the 1980s just ended. Yeah. The, the Brennan Wall had just come down. We were going into the millennial period, which, you know, in historical terms has been a period of great uncertainty. Sometimes it's... End of history. End of history, exactly. Who knows? We'll all be kind of standing on a hilltop waiting for, like, the meteorites to arrive by the end of it all. And in 19, this strange thing happened that one of the cultural figures of the year, and a lot of mainstream figure, as we were saying earlier on, became David Lynch, who is... um, Incredible. uh, Yeah, who... How odd is... um, Who... Yeah, Twin Peaks came out. Um, what well, came out later in the year here? When was it? When did it open? In Amer- when did it play in America first? Twin Peaks. I think probably early on in the year. I think. So my memory is we got it. We got it late in the year, some months after it had been. A, I mean, that'd be That's wrong. Sort of a cultural phenomenon over there. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, also in the same year, uh, Wild at Heart played um, in Cannes and won the Palme d'Or. So he was in the strange position, that, well, extraordinary position of being a, winning the Palme d'Or at Cannes and having directed and created uh, with Frost the most talked about television series of the year. Um, I don't, I think unfortunately Wild at Heart suffers from the fact that it does, even by then, it did pretty much what we expected a David Lynch film to do at that stage. It did the kind of things that Blue Velvet had done Kind but not quite so effectively. And, uh, yes, the Sydney underbelly, and also that was kind of a little less interesting. It was really in a sleazy world, whereas the thing with Blue Velvet was it was exactly it was the white picket fence and all those sorts of things. Um, still got great things in it. Of course, it does. That's the point of this conversation. Um, Willem Dafoe's um, was made. Bobby uh, Pezzo. What's his name? Is it Bobby oh, Peru? Bobby, that sounds Bobby right. Peru. Bobby Peru. That's right. With his teeth, yeah. which are very Mister. Again, if you want to talk about the return, Mister Mister C teeth, where they got you to sort of like the decay or the sort of like almost gummy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I suppose in a sense, you might argue Willem Dafoe maybe is a, a, one of those characters who you really expect to be a villain before he arrives on screen. <laughs> yeah. So there's less kind of undercutting there. <laughs> but he, but he's great in it. Roy Dern's terrific in it, and that uh, uh, um, Nicholas Cage at an interesting point in his career where Nicholas Cage was still regarded as largely 
an indie sort of actor. Yeah. I mean, this is the, the guy who came from uh, Rumblefish and yeah. films like that. And still had an um, Oscar ahead of him um, at this yeah, point as well. Like, there was right. a, Before well, he became, I think, what modern generations know Nicolas Cage as. As a guy in a vest. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it was, you know, some year. I mean, it was, it's, it's, it's often forgotten on it, but for a few years early on in his career, He's primarily doing for doing you know quite serious in, in, in films for Zoetrope with his uncle Francis Ford Coppola, uh, and 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 that, that's where he still was at that stage. That I mean, it was, this was the sort of film you expected to find Nicolas Cage in, rather than a film where he was stripped to his vest, um, waving a machine gun in the air <laughs> uh, for Michael Bay or waiting to be one of those gifs or memes or to spout a one-liner that everybody will you know, yeah the entire generation. But, I, but while the heart exists, I think in that in that strange place then where we had just about gotten used to what we expected David Lynch to do in film yeah. terms anyway and it delivered in that sense and I think going back now the problem the reason why it rates slightly lower in in in, in this list is that there's nothing much set it apart apart from the fact that in in the canon apart from the fact apart from historically but yeah. but the point it, it indicated this point, which David Lynch became right at the centre of the cultural conversation. Um, you know, so I, I think for those reasons, it, it has slipped a little um, in, in in estimation. You're quite right there, actually, just in terms of it being like it being. I think he's described as his, his Annabellus uh, miraculous. Yeah, the year yes, in which right, like yeah. David Lynch became like the face of like American pop culture for a little while. And it's I think you're entirely like I really like Wild at Heart. I haven't actually I should have put a list together for this. I have <laughs> woefully underprepared. Um I'm so I'm not sure I love them all equally. There's a great um I was attending a lecture from Lynch on Transcendental Meditation and he was asked to rank his films, which is that stock thing that you ask every director. Yeah. And he gave the answer that every director gives, which is they're all my children, I love them all equally, even yeah. the redheaded stepchild that is Dune. Um, <laughs> but right, I have yeah. a soft spot for um, I have a soft spot for Wild at Heart and a large part of that is because I think it comes before Firewalk with me and before Lynch kind of becomes an artist who I think he like the return was a large part of the cultural conversation Mulholland Drive is widely loved mm. but like they aren't on the scale of success of say Blue Velvet or like uh, Twin Peaks the original one mm. and I think that Wild at Heart is the last time that he sort of did that so I'm perhaps more forgiving of him or, or of it for that Do you mean, do you mean it was more of success in commercial terms? I mean it was, it was maybe even a... more culturally like I mean I feel like it's a movie that you could probably like if you showed Lost Highway to people or if you showed um, even Inland Empire they're a lot less accessible, I think, yeah, than, yeah. than say Wild at Heart. Wild at Heart is a that's true. It is. Yeah, well, yes, oh, can good. I ask you to close to the fact? Sorry, oh, sorry. Uh, that's a, that, that's a fair point. Yeah, for for um, a film that has its great excesses, um, and of course that's partly due to the fact it's from comes from Barry Gifford's novel. I think that, and it's a reasonably faithful version yeah. of Barry Gif Gifford's novel, which though kind of you know, deranged in its way is nonetheless a conventional narrative. So that's true. Yes, it does have a conventional narrative in a way that um, even um, a, a Blue Velvet couldn't really boast, um, which kind of goes this way and the other, though it has a, the shape of a conventional noir detective story. So that is true. Yes, it probably has more of a connection with that in those films that are properly Lynchian, unlike perhaps the next one we're about to discuss. Oh, do you want to guess what the next one is? Do you want to guess what uh, is this is seven? Is The Straight Story, number seven. Uh, number seven is The Straight Story, um, which I think um, uh, is, um, you could argue that June, as I just about have, is the black swan here, but maybe this is the black swan uh, more than June. In fact, it probably is more, actually, that despite the fact that uh, it's, a, it's a more successful film, um, in that uh, the straight story is a uh, general cert family film from Walt Disney. It's got, actually got Walt Disney on the poster. It's not Touchstone. It's not any of the kind of <laughs> Walt Disney spin-offs. It's actually a Walt Disney film. Uh, it's also uh, a film which he didn't get a writing credit, which I think is an, uh, an important thing to point out. Um, uh, uh, it's got old chums like uh, like Sissy Spacek, who's an old chum from the old days in it. Um, Badalamente score, which obviously goes back goes back to the, um, but it, it it is um, so in no sense in, se in the sense that it is a conventional narrative that is a family film that is made for Disney. All those things quite literally a is, straight story. Uh, yeah, I, I mean I'm sure that must have been in his head at some <laughs> point that the gag there. Um, uh, it is the black swan. It is the one that really sticks out. But I recall an interview having said that. Um, I mean I don't think he would 
I mean, he would he would deny everything we say here. I yeah. suggest about yeah. his films, any analysis about his films, any oh, yeah. to put yeah, undoubtedly. Yeah, but I'm sure he certainly would deny that. And I remember an interview with Laura Dern from um, uh, well about Blue Velvet, Blue Velvet. So I presume shortly after that period, and she was talking about that that speech about the Robins in in Blue Velvet, where like I saw the Robins all come down, and she has that yeah. sort of thing, this morbidly sort of sentimental speech. And one thing she was saying about when trying to explain David Lynch to other people was she saying that he actually believes in that. He actually believes in the Robins. And in some sense, and you know, this goes to the confusing politics of, of David Lynch, in some sense he really believes in America. the beauty of America and the white picket fence and what's going on by, and, and what's going on behind the white picket fence and Lumberton and all those things. He believes those are good places. There's somewhere that he'd like to live, despite the fact he always lives just outside there in some gloomy cave, you know, lurking in the forest where the bad things happen. That, that in some sense he really does believe in those things. Um uh, he, I mean, he is. Uh, he's talked interestingly in, in political terms about his own politics, and he's a Democrat who kind of hates the namby pamby, you know, Democrats. Yeah. That he's he's still giving out about the fact that they banned smoking, yeah. you know, after all right. these years. So there's something of a kind of libertarian kind of to him there. there. And what I'm getting to here, obviously, is so you can kind of see how the world of the straight story of this individual, this older traditional. Um, uh, individualist who won't be told what to do by you know the Namby Pamby <laughs> people <laughs> who require him to be able to see in order to drive exactly, a car. Yeah, yeah. All those bloody yes, absolutely bureaucrats. Yeah, bureaucrats. Yeah. So I mean, though it'd be wrong to kind of overdo any analysis of David Lynch's politics, I think you can see something in there yeah. that he actually genuinely believes in, which is something we're not going to not going to talk about much in this list because <laughs> it's it's you know it, it, it's hard to it slips through yeah. any notion of kind of a philosophy or a political belief and Lynch slips through your fingers. Yeah, I mean you get a you get a sense of him maybe trying to portray people saying things about uh about politics in 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 the return. But <laughs> Dr. You, you don't yeah, <laughs> yeah you, you yeah. don't really get a sense of how of how David feels about this. You get a sense that there 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 are people in America who are upset for various reasons. Like you have the 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 the, the people in the car with Harry Dean Stanton, like yeah. kind of like complaining about the 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 government. But it doesn't it like it it just feels like it's not very eavesdropping on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I well, I think that that's right. Was, I mean, he got into the trouble of the last few years when he said something oh, about Trump. Oh, Trump is the great disruptor. He uh, could Trump, be go down as the greatest president. Yeah, and y- you sort of think, well, you know, it's funny. There are we all we sort of think of him as being outside society, but you can't be outside society. Yeah. And that was a statement that made sense in Lynch world. This notion that he was this sort of abstract figure, Trump yeah. was an abstract performance figure. performance art. Yeah. yeah, quite exactly. So <laughs> yeah. it could be viewed as a greatest president. So, but the problem with that is it has practical consequences with Donald Trump, who yeah. then starts stomping around the place saying, David Lynch thinks I'm great. <laughs> this, Which is you know, great. I love the yeah. idea of the White and, House screening um, Blue you know, Velvet. So, yeah. Yeah. So it would make has, as much sense as that Kanye um, <laughs> kind of speech that he had in his well, yeah, well, yeah, well, Lynch was more, is more connected to reality than Kanye. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he did clarify immediately on he Facebook did, did to be clear and did say yes. that he did say, and pretty much what you said, Donald, which is that while it's a great idea and abstract theory, this idea of a shock to the system, there are real practical consequences yeah. and hurting people is not a good thing. That's right. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. I think Slavoj Zizek had had uh, suggested that 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 uh, uh, Trump um, should and would win, and that it was going to. Well, Zizek of... is more pointedly mischievous, isn't he? I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, that he he really is a disruptor in a way yeah. that's kind of slightly unattractive. I mean, that uh, I think people are kind of wising up to that. I think uh, so. Yeah. Uh, whereas Lynch was, it wasn't. He was really tending to abstract the notion of Trump as something you could look at as a work of art, almost, which. You can, but it's it's irresponsible, I think, (laughs) in the current climate, because Trump won't play along. I mean, he'll just say, look, David Lynch thinks I'm great. (laughs) The straight story, we should say, is a great film. I mean, we're we're talking around it as this oddity. Um, I wonder what we'd think about if we didn't know no, it was directed it was by David Lynch. Lynch. It was directed by Robert Zemeckis. Well, that, yeah. seems, that seems unlikely. But... It'd be like music. It's like Music of the Heart for Wes Craven. It's one of those films yeah. that it's like, it's, it's, it's more interesting. than Music of the Heart. Okay, that's a fair well, point. I, I, think, well, I, I think there's a different thing going on there, actually, <laughs> yeah. because, uh, I mean, God bless Wes Craven. That's also seemed to me like the platonic version 
of the film that a genre filmmaker makes when he wants to gain respectability was oh, okay, a terrible yeah. idea. <laughs> make the film you want to make, you know, yeah. by all means, make any kind of film you want to make. But the straight know. story is very much a Lynch story through. Yeah. through. Like the Dear yeah. Lady, for example. Yeah. Again, like I, th- I believe that's based on a true story, but that's a very Lynch touch. Yeah, yeah. That's There's no suggestion. I mean, the odd thing is, despite the fact that it, that that it, that, that it is one of our two candidates for Black Swan <laughs> here, there is actually it, it, it's not really because there's no suggestion here at all that it's not something he believed in. I mean, it, it feels entirely uh, sincere. And it's a great film. I mean, and it's a great performance. Richard Farnsworth in the middle of it all. Terrific yeah. film. All right, then. We're going to have to speed things up as we run through the top right. six, but it's pure Cut Lynch. Uh, what is uh, pure on Cut Lynch? Six, gone for Lost six. Highway. Nice. Um, which felt like a comeback to an old Lynch in the, in the 1990s, about 10 years after uh, Blue Velvet. Um, he got a little bit lost in the mix in those years. We'd had, as we said, we'd had the first Twin Peaks. We'd had uh, Fire Walk With Me. Um, sort of forgotten about him for a few years, yeah. and it was great to have this film come back. It didn't, as you were saying earlier on, Darren, didn't have the it, it, the popular appeal of Wild Listeners Heart. Listeners have noted we only have 700 more hours to go. <laughs> <laughs> the popular appeal of Wild at Heart. But but I can remember going to see it in the Irish Film Institute. It felt, oh, good, this is, this is still happening. Yeah. Um, and... It, it, all you can well, one of the things you can ask for a Lynch film is that it has those visual and aural moments that stick with you, and it has a bunch of those that, re- that really stick with you, and particularly his treatment of interiors in that film. There's those wonderful moments where there's something happening in the corner that you can't quite put your Make finger out. on, that yeah. noise happening in the corner, the, the highway itself kind of rattling around. I think all those things have popped up in music videos after that point. Um, and I think, whereas there's an, enorm- there's an enormous amount of distinguished, I think it's a terrific piece of Lynchiana. All right, and at number five. At number five, we have. The, um, here's a contention. Contentious high or contentious well, low? Well, no, no, no. I think, I think you, you, you probably get, looking at what's left. You could probably guess what's coming in at number five. I think, it, but uh, oh, what's coming in at number five then, Dar? <laughs> Damn, put me on the spot. Inland Empire. Yes, correct. Um, given that the, the the top four are kind of four Seth, gems of, yeah. of American American stroke British cinema, um, uh, in an Empire is I think the great puzzler of a lot. I mean, yes. all I mean, you know, all, all his <laughs> films, with the exception of the Straight Story, possibly, or even Dune, are puzzlers in some sense. Um, this is the you know the great puzzler of the lot, um, and. Uh, I would be honest and say that I would be lying if I said the first time I see it there weren't longers. There weren't moments when I, <laughs> there weren't moments when my mind wandered just a little. Um, but I want to point out one thing about it, which is I think again, which goes back to the, the time that it came out. Um, uh, well, it, I said, right? Two thousand six. And actually, talking about that puzzling thing, I mean, I met him at that point. This is the point at which I can I can slot in my own personal <laughs> experience, David Lynch, which was. Uh, uh, and I can remember it was a round, round table. I've got to confess, it wasn't a one-on-one interview, but we weren't turning down a round table with David Lynch as we were only trying to get him. And I can remember that uh, it, it got to that notion of, which we may talk about like in a film or two later, about that infuriating notion, which is the most annoying thing about about analysis of David Lynch, of analysis is over dignifying the phrase on Twitter in the world, that there is a solution to these films. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That you know that the, and people were on the table asking him and you know, is it about this? And I think it's about this and, and he the answer was always no. <laughs> and then he'd go on the <laughs> and he'd say, Well, you know, I've seen it is it but no. To be fair, he's gotten better at that with the return, where he's asked, "Is this about television?" He's like, "No, but that's a perfectly good reading if you want to do it that well, way." Well, that's pretty much what he said. Exactly. Yeah. The answer was, "I mean, I mean, actually, yeah." Funny, I did remember asking a question, and I did get a kind of sort of clarification. I said, "Well, he kept saying like." Whatever interpretation you put into yeah. it is fine. I said, well, what if someone came to you and said, I see a, a, an argument for white supremacism? Is that fine? I said, well, not that. <laughs> and then moved on. <laughs> I'm going to clarify. But, yeah. It, yeah, but I, think, I think that's... That, that was, but just quickly before we go on, we'll come, I think we'll come back to this in a minute with um, another film. But but uh, uh, one of the interesting parts of that historically was that I, I would connect that to another film contemporaneous from the time was with Miami Vice and that was the, the point at which two very well known directors um, two very different directors uh, Michael Mann and David, and David Lynch both proudly stood up and said we are shooting digitally from now on film is dead 
and they both said more or less those things. And it, 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 it but you looking back now, you realize it meant different things then to what That's it means it. now because then it meant why the hell are these two filmmakers who make very beautiful films making really Hello. ugly films now? Because that was because that, that uh, I, I think it kind of works maybe maybe better they both with work, Michael Mann. Actually, but, <laughs> but, but 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 at the time, I mean. <laughs> We knew it would get better. Yeah. We knew that the definition would improve and that you'd have what you... And, and you'd and, figure out how to shoot light but in that at way. at the same time, it felt like, why are you... <laughs> p- p- these two directors make visually very striking films now telling us you're going to make really <laughs> ugly films. Yeah, no, my, my abiding memory of Inland Empire is going on it on a second date and being told we were never watching a David Lynch film again. Yeah. Um, that was that was my experience. But I think probably the look of it probably added that, Darren, didn't it? Because it, it, if you think, I mean, if you go and look at it now, it does look like it's shot on camera phones. Yeah. But camera phones then, now camera phones look great. <laughs> yeah. Now you can get a film like Tangerine by Sean Baker. And it looks absolutely lovely. Because in, 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 his, in his early work and in kind of Twin Peaks season one, like the, everything seems to have a sort of like a really soft edge to it. Yeah. You know, that, mm. it, that, it, that, it, that, that, um, I suppose you, you get with film or, the, or the, that, that it's, uh, that there's something, um, so sharp, like in, yeah. in, 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 in digital film. And that maybe that accounted for some of why people <laughs> didn't love, um, the return as much as, <laughs> as much as they did because people just want what they had before. Yeah. Well, I think the, the, there's, there's that as well. There's also lushness to the earlier films. I mean, the, I mean, the Blue mm. Velvet in particular is an incredibly lush film. Yeah. It has that richness and depth of a Douglas Sirk film, which is a fair connection to make because those were also were films that were kind of subverting notions about um, small-town America and about traditional America. Um, whereas was in an Emperor is this harsh-looking, mm. you know, color a film that large part looks like it's made in black and white because it's so muted and grey. It's also, I think, an absolutely fascinating film and I've gone back yeah. and watched it many, many times and I've enjoyed tweaking out the bits that um, that get at my psyche most effectively and hang around in the brain and and, and working out which bits perhaps do feel like, like, like meandering <laughs> and, could have been, and could have been removed but are better off let, left in there because it's the nature of a, a film like this that it really is a collection um, of uh, not random is the wrong word, but, but it, it is the subconscious plowed out in a way that David Lynch does best, uh, does better than anybody else. Um, and I think for those reasons, and also it has individual bits that remain kind of part of the Lynchiana, oh, yeah. that the, the rabbits, yes. and, and, as it was more than anything else, which obviously was had emerged in this series, series web yeah. series done before, yeah, sort of web. I've got a sitcom, but, <laughs> but a, a web, With laughter a web at the com, anyway, yeah, involving involving rabbits, and all those things. I think could try to make it to make a really fascinating fascinating film that um, you would not bring anyone to if they were not already on board with the idea. Well, of, I know that now, Lynch. Donald. Yeah, Thank I you. <laughs> but I, see, I think I, I think, but I think if you brought you know that person to to Blue Velvet, um, uh, even maybe Lost Highway, you know that they they might have been okay with it because it, it just didn't. Well, firstly, they were both. It was it's really long in Land Empire. Yeah, it's really long. Oh yeah, I didn't know that before yeah. I went in. I went it in relatively looks really blind. horrible. Yeah. <laughs> and it and it like again, Lynch is abstract, but this is particularly abstract. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, number four then. So we're getting to the canonical. Four. Well, the four exactly. I I mean, I would. I, I mean, I don't. People may disagree, but I mean, I think the the the, the top. Four are four of the vital, most vital films in American stroke British. <laughs> we'll see in a minute. We'll see in a minute. Uh, cinema, um, uh, none of which I would be without. Um, and you could probably juggle these around in any order. Um, and they'll be but, defensible or fair. Yeah. Yes, but for, for the sake of this conversation, I'm going to put Blue Velvet um, at number four, um, which uh, is. Again, I can remember. Again, it was a great, it was a delight to, to see because I had um, seen Eraserhead at college, so in the early nineteen eighties, um, and I loved it. And I loved it, and um, I'd then been to see. Uh, uh, um, um, no, actually, I should seen Eraserhead after I'd seen Elephant Man. Elephant Man, I saw when it came out. In nineteen, looking down at this now, nineteen. <laughs> Donald has done research in a completely uh, uncharacteristic movie. This I think it sounds about right. Actually, actually it's probably nineteen eighty-one. Now I think okay. about. It. I think I think it would have come out in nineteen eighty-one in Ireland. Uh, uh, so my last year at school actually would have been. 
And uh, then I saw a razor head, and um, uh, and then he kind of went away again. Okay, the, the story of David Lynch, to a certain extent, is long periods of him going away. Uh, happily, he always comes back, and he and and he eventually always comes back with something triumphant. Um, uh, which is the case of Blue Velvet. I mean, this was you know kind of six years after Eraserhead, and at a time when I when you're that age, when six years is like decades, An eternity, yeah, yeah, and you know, I a decade since Eraserhead, which might as well have been fifty, as far as I was concerned. I was just thinking that who I who I reckoned was a really important guy, and I heard friends had been to America. Um, in the summer when it came out, um, so and it was a just I went to see it in London. When I was then living the year out, year I left university, uh, and w- it's one of those films you walk out of where you feel slightly changed for a few hours. You're kind of walking around, and the whole world around you seems slightly changed and freaked out. Also, um, when we kind of forget about it here as well was it was it was quite controversial. Um, politically and in terms of its gender politics. I can remember seeing it at the Renmar Cinema in the West End of London and there were feminists handing out leaflets outside saying, do not go and see this film, do not go see this film. And I went up to one of them and said, can I have the leaflets? Like, read yeah. what you're saying. He said, I'm sorry, we're only handing them out to women, we're not handing them out to men. And so my friend Trish was beside me and I said, <laughs> Trish, would you get me a leaflet? And she said, can I have a leaflet? And I said, and almost this sort of sense of like you know we're not giving it to you for giving it to him. You gave it, they, gave it, they gave it to me. Gave it to me. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm 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 I am. I don't mean. To and be, that is the story of how how Donald got to read the arguments against Blue Velvet. Exactly. That's, I don't mean to be. Well, I'm being a bit facetious. Obviously, I'm conscious. I can't pretend not. But there are clearly there were reasonable arguments about yeah. the fact that here was a film in which. Um, uh, uh, the protagonist thumped a woman, and she then gave in to him in a way yeah. that is is incredibly very uncomfortable. Though, of course, the film is full of horrors. It is yeah. in that sense a film that goes straight yeah. into the darker corners of the id, um, and did a lot of things. Then, in what was a what was a an age where cinema was, was not as referential as uh, the yeah. F but of the that it would become uh, in its sort of postmodern period with yeah. the advent of. Quentin Tarantino and all those various things that came with him. The, in that less referential era, the fact you had the cinema which called up the 1950s and summoned up the spirits of Douglas Sirk, as we mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, what was. I mean, even the title is a reference unusual. to a song. Unusual, yeah. yes. And, to, and, you know, a 30 year old song being kind of, you know. Crooned by Dean Stockwell, isn't it? That's point? right, yeah. yeah b- b- being introduced. All those things were less common then than, 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 than they are now. And one thing also we've got about it was that someone else who was dragged up from not obscurity but sort of like from the wings was Dennis Hopper yeah. who'd um, uh, who'd been sort of floating here and there never vanished totally but it not was not a major figure in popular culture anymore um, in 1986 uh, and, and and got him right back in there and that was I mean that you know it really was a film that everybody was talking about for two or three months after that period uh, and I think people thought would hope that it would lead to a continuation of a career um, but no one was betting on it because it's such an odd film, such an odd career to that point. All right, and we're because we're kind of under a load of pressure. Number three, we've we've we have tons of hours, but yes, we do. Have tons of, <laughs> sorry, I, I, yes, we're we're going to hold Donald hostage until he tells us. Number one. I, uh, don't I can I can hang around for ages blabbering <laughs> blabbering this nonsense. Um, number three, I'm going to go for for the uh, for the Elephant Man. Um, uh, this is as we say is. Um, this story of David Lynch is a story of extraordinary shifts, things you didn't expect to happen, while still sort of certain lines continuing through, certain certain uh, uh, aesthetic lines continuing through. But there's really none other than this notion of Mel Brooks, of all people, <laughs> yeah. who we all know to be an extremely clever man and a, you know, a, a you know that uh, a man of great sensitivity, that uh, wide range of interests. Seeing a racer head, thinking it was the best thing he'd ever seen. The guy who made Blazing Saddles yes. and the guy, who, the guy who made a Young Frankenstein, and thinking that this was the guy, this guy who this this that stage still uh, young avant-garde artist, filmmaker, n- noise experimentalist, was the guy to make a film about um, John Merrick, the Elephant Man. Who, funny, we're talking there about you know ten years later, David Lynch becoming the man of the month. Briefly, there weirdly, John Merrick was. The man of the moment. It was about yeah. the same time that David Bowie, 
um, went into the play yeah, um, of The Elf Man on, uh, on, on Broadway. Yeah. That was the, the point where after John Lennon was shot, they discovered that the um, the assassin had the playbill for The Elephant Man as well. Oh, well and I apparently, that. Really? Yeah, apparently that... he had been considering various celebrity targets. He wanted to, oh, he wanted to kill I a celebrity. I've ever knew that. That's interesting. That's um, interesting. There are also like that, there's all these sort of stories that like after John Lennon was shot, you would stop seeing actors like uh, Al Pacino jogging through New York. Mm-hmm. That it's sort of like in a way sort of segregated the kind of the the sort of celebrity class from yeah. from others because obviously if this could happen yeah um, and I mean it, it was it around that time Michael Jackson was trying to buy the boats if I remember correctly it must have been about that well he well, no it couldn't have been actually because Jackson was extremely young uh, then okay. I mean that uh, well no then again it, we're not because appara- so young actually no, but I mean I, I would say it would have been later I mean apparently that's the one thing that himself and Lynch talked about when Lynch did I think a promo for was it the Dangerous Tour or whatever ah, apparently right. because they only had a few minutes together the one thing yeah. that Jackson talked to him about was the Elephant Man because yeah. apparently he wanted to buy the bones of John Merrick yeah yeah um, so there's your there's but your for, David but Lynch for somebody but for, for for a filmmaker who we discuss uh, in often quite dry terms David Lynch it is such it is one of the most nakedly emotional films of the decade The Elephant Man uh, just because uh, our listeners have corrected me it was 1988 that he tried that Michael Jackson tried yeah, to on, yeah. it didn't sound right he, was, he would have been very young in, in, in 1980 and that's sort of but you know even before um, Off the Wall isn't it yeah. so yeah that, uh, but um well, there's nakedly emotional films that um, uh, of that of the decade The Elephant Man um, uh, and I Again, we've said this before. It, it's uh, part of the reason that it remains like one of the great films of that era, or any, any era, um, is its melding together of two apparently um, uh, um, incompatible, no, uh, incompatible genres or incompatible aesthetics. In that, what you have is the most boring of all aesthetics. It's a biopic. It's not only that; it's a biopic of a Victorian figure. You can sort of feel yourself slumping off the chair onto the floor at the very at the notion of its Oscar baitiness. Um, and indeed, it got nominated for eight Oscars, yes. but it could and not Lynch be. Got a... nominated for director, did he? If I remember correctly. Oh, I'm not sure about that. He was, he was okay. nominated for um, for Mulholland Drive. Ah, he was okay, but I, I, he those... probably. I guess he might have been. He's got eight nominations. Fact machine. To the fact machine. <laughs> 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 Stalling live on air. You're supposed to do it before we have to yes, say that. Yes, he was nominated. <laughs> so um, twice nominated for Best No, best uh, three times nominated and nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay as well for The Elephant Man. All right, but he's um, twice nominated for Best Director then obviously. No, three times for, like, so he's nominated for The Elephant Man, Blue Velvet and for Mulholland Drive. Well, Blue Velvet was he? Well, there and there's the famous yeah. story I think it's been observed that I don't think any Lynch's films have been nominated for Best Picture, which is no. something that's very indicative of how I think maybe his colleagues see him. They see him as somebody who is Well, do you know respected. it's funny you say that because when you say that, what what's, comes to my head, my, my head is that the same thing is true of foreign language directors a lot of the time. That, that you know, that the foreign language directors, all kinds of, of foreign language directors, have got nominated for uh, Bergman being one example. Sorry, You're not nominated when been. their films haven't. Um, so it is one of those things that's regarded as like you know he's like a foreign language director in that sense that he's outside the mainstream. But uh, but but. But but as I was saying earlier on, that, that it is like the most boring of all genres, which is the not just the biopic, this but the historical biopic from the um, uh, Victorian era, uh, and yet it is. Um, uh, or is it Edwardian? I'm thinking so. Do I mean Edwardian? I mean Victorian, don't I? I think it is Victorian. I think you mean yeah. Victorian. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, it, it yeah may it's, straddle it's, it's late, both. It's late. Yeah, possibly. I'm sure the anyway. We know we're we know we're talking, we're talking <laughs> yeah, about late exactly, late yeah. late nineteenth early twentieth late late nineties. It is yeah. So it is, it is, it is Victorian. Um, that uh, that. That, that in terms of visually and most importantly, I would say orally is absolutely in tune with David Lynch's work, and particularly with Eraserhead, which just came beforehand, is a film in black and white which relies as much on the ambient noise for its effect as it relies on the cinematography, which which is still tremendous. Freddie Francis, I believe, um, uh, than anything else. I mean, the, I, the one thing I remember. Way from watching it at the time, to- the time way back in, you know, as I say, when I'm my last year in school, was the hiss from the gas lamps, which is one of those things you didn't tend to get in in period films. Yeah. That, but you had the shh all the time, which would yeah. would have been an ambient sound throughout, and those sorts of things were just incredibly powerful. Um, and in terms of British cinema, it it uh, it made great use of a whole range of. Great British actors, Anthony that, Hopkins, uh, famously John Hopkins, well, um, yeah. Hannah Gordon, who was like you know this uh, as a very small role um, uh, uh, as Anthony Hopkins's wife, and she's terrific, a very warm personality from British television uh, of the period, and Bancroft, obviously um, Mel Brooks's wife, 
at um, uh, who's terrific at um, uh, Freddie Jones, uh, Toby Jones's father. At um, uh, is is great. Michael Elphick, great range of which is one of the things actually that British cinema has always been good at. I'm particularly good at that period. Is like character actors all the way through. Yeah. You know, you cut down through like the, the cut down through the, through, through the meat of the film. You know, find brilliant character actors all the way through from top to bottom. Even people like you know serving pies in the sideline are great. It's, it's, it's probably I get the sense that it's especially that casting is especially important in a Lynch movie. Because from what a lot of people have said, he he won't give them like, like an enormous amount of to, direction in um, terms of literal of direction sense. to work with. Like he, he's not not going to kind of um, like with with it's with, Robert Tar- f- with Tarantino. Like he often kind of um, um, gets it like reveals something in an actor that you hadn't really kind of like seen yeah. seen before. Whereas like I I, I get the sense which with with Lynch that with 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 some of the, well, obviously with a lot of exceptions, that a lot of the the kind of uh, performances come from like really good casting, like picking the the, the, the actor who fits that niche particularly well. Yeah, exactly. and also I, mean, I think that's a, that's a very. I may have fair to go point. down and let our next guest in. Please continue um, at your at your leisure. Uh, it's a very fair point. I think um, uh, often people you don't expect or people who I need to give Darren a stage whisper. Sorry, go okay, on. I'll keep talking then. But um, talking about casting, about you have that thing. It's people that you may know beforehand but don't know them in this particular sort of role so for example I mean someone like Dennis Hopper we mentioned earlier on is a very good example of that that Hopper was someone who was kind of lurking around in the psyche um, well going way back to the 50s it, um, uh, in Rumble Without a Cause and then through through Easy Rider but he was someone who was lurking around the psyche and people have forgotten about and the other man yeah, is going straight through that, running straight through that. You have that thing, and we haven't mentioned John Hurt yet. Actually, funny, we're talking about casting. No, we had yeah. this company talking about this film for five minutes. We haven't mentioned John Hurt, and uh, it's John Hurt's best performance, and you don't see his face at any point in the film. And that's saying John Hurt's best performance is is no mean praise, um, but it probably is his best performance, and you don't see his face anyway through the whole film. And it's a real fight, as I recall, because uh, there's all kinds of complications. Because remember this notion that Lynch had designed his own makeup. Right. First of all, and I think they had that they were trying to make that work until day weeks, possibly days before they began to shoot. It didn't work. Yeah. And so they had to go back and get you know make it on fresh, which it turned out to be excellent. Um. But yeah, you're right. Absolutely right. I mean, the casting and that the casting all throughout the Elephant Man is immaculate, absolutely immaculate. Sorry, sorry, no. No, and and um, and it's and it's it's as was the as the case with all his films, it's often. In that case, familiar faces who've been brought in to do something you didn't expect them to do, right? Which I think is, which, which I think is always, you know, a very powerful way of working with actors. It's going to subvert our expectations in that regard. And it, it's 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 a very emotional movie, but it, I, I think all, uh, often on the podcast, and I think you've answered this question about another movie, but <laughs> and, and the, uh, a real test of kind of how cold your heart is is, did you cry At watching the Elephant Man? Uh, the Elephant Man? I did not actually. Oh wow! Oh, really? Oh no! Not at the end, spoiler. When, <laughs> he, when, he, when, he, when, he, when he decides to lie down like a little, I'm gonna cry now. Decides to lie down like a little boy, I'm and <laughs> I feel really bad now. I, I just left the room for two minutes. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, like uh, the Elephant Man is absolutely beautiful. It's worth knowing the Elephant Man in terms of Lynch's popularity because Andrew and I do a list of podcast about the IMDb's yeah. top 250 movies. The Elephant Man is the only Lynch movie on there at the moment. Oh, is it really? Yeah, I which is quite. I, I meant to check that before I came in, actually, because I know yeah. you'd be talking with this but um, I, I would have assumed Mulholland Drive was there no Mulholland Drive was there and dropped off and so was Blue Velvet uh, Dune sadly didn't make it I'm afraid Andrew I'm sorry <laughs> to break that to you but yeah um, Elephant Man is the one with the sort of the lasting appeal I'm not surprised Elephant Man is there I'm astonished Mulholland Drive isn't there which brings us to number two <laughs> nice segue <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> funny you should mention that because it's no it's not it's, it's Mulholland Drive at number two um, you should have that what could bit. possibly be number one I wonder but uh, yes well there's always there's always room for the for the water boy um, uh, is he in a film David Lynch I'm forgetting about that we could, we could sneak in is he, is can we count Lucky cameo? yeah we can count Lucky as, uh, as a David Lynch Film after a fashion. Um, uh, Drive, um, uh, in a poll that I voted in actually a few years ago um, for BBC was voted as the greatest film of the 21st, 21st century. century. 
twist one can answer. Fair enough. I mean, you know, I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. But I mean, if if, you're, if, if that's one you're going to pick, it'll do as well as any. Yeah. Which is um, which is which which sounds like mean praise, but it's not mean praise. Um, if a film can register as a possible best film of the century, then it's some some kind of film. Um, it's um uh, uh it, it its success is all the more remarkable in that it comes from a potentially compromised source in that it was hobbled together from a potential TV series. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, which is a really bad way to make a film. <laughs> um, that, uh, it's a really As bad... number nine on the list may attest. <laughs> well, yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, though, even, though even Fire Walk With Me, yeah. you know, it, it's, you had, the preparation was all in hand. Yeah. And it, we, it knew what it was. Mahal Drive was a film which was started... Uh, and, and it was sort of without without the director knowing what it was going to turn out as, or even what, what medium it was going to turn turn out as, um, and yet it remains a, a, an incredibly powerful film with full of good scenes and again really well cast. You know, I mean Naomi Watts was nobody uh, once we did that film, star making performance. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, in that film, I think uh, two things I'd say about it. What, what one is that um is that. David Lynch films don't tend to be about something in inverted commas in any kind of easy way. This actually is about something. It's about. I mean, it's about. It has a subject that uh, it has a topic. It has a theme, and that is Hollywood. Um, it's yeah. about Hollywood and about about Hollywood's relationship then in two thousand and one. Um, but still, feels kind of modern. <laughs> it was kind of contemporaneous, even twenty years later. Uh, and with old Hollywood and the uh, the, um, uh, the the presence of Anne Miller, the great musical star in the film, kind of points towards that. Um, that the, the apartment block is like something, it's like the apartment is like an apartment in uh, in a lonely place from one of those uh, film noirs from the 1950s that has uh, um, that, that ambience to it. And the film is very much, a, a, it's structured very much like a classic Hollywood star is born story. It's a girl who comes to Hollywood you know, with dreams of stardom and fine stardom, but in very different, sinister ways to it. Yeah. But to to, to way we expect from, uh, from so to, so. That, but um, it also I think because it came a second second point I'm gonna make because it came at the point, and this is something we, we, that we haven't discussed about the the lineage of these films before. It came at a point at which the internet had really arrived. Yeah. Um, and at a point at which. Internet 2.0. I can't remember what that conversation right. was at the time, was it? The <laughs> I don't think which... they ever call it 1.5. No, no, no. <laughs> but certainly it was at the point at which certainly kind of user-generated exactly. um, uh, material was kicking off. It started all these kind of mad conversations about what it was about. Um, and th- there is a... Interestingly, when I was writing some notes down this afternoon, there is a... I won't, I won't mention it, actually, because um, I don't want to kind of encourage him. But there was a, a guy on Twitter who... Um, uh, began writing weird screeds it, quite recently, I mean, like two or three years ago, okay. to myself and other critics. I think, you know, I, I, I don't know if it was randomly researching, whenever we mentioned David Lynch, because he had solved, this man had solved <laughs> Mulholland Drive. It was solved. And what it was about was like Hollywood. Wittgenstein, and now yeah. he can return to his gardening. Exactly. He yes, exactly. <laughs> mysteries. <laughs> yeah. That's right, yes. Yeah, we've worked out um, how the universe functions. We can now go back to gardening. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, this guy, and he got, he got really angry about it. That, he, that you know, that, and like, you know, Pete, myself, and I remember Robbie Collin from The Telegraph having a conversation with him. Um, and a few others. Um, hey, right. And uh, uh, we're talking about... Darren, I, I don't know if you if you know if you know who I'm talking about. I'm not going to name him, but but, but there was a person on Twitter, oh, okay, who popped up about two or three years ago, um, to uh, whenever critics mentioned David Lynch, whenever critics mentioned David Lynch, to explain to them that he had solved. Um, Mulholland oh, Drive. Oh, I remember. I got those tweets. Yes, I got those. Well, tweets. now, funnily enough, if you if people go to my Twitter account, Donald <laughs> at Donald Clark sixty three, <laughs> then they will find. I actually looked him up this afternoon. Oh, because I was writing some notes down. Proper thought, research. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, on yeah, on Twitter. That's really uh, <laughs> the, the, the the hardest of all research. Looking up Twitter, but uh, and I thought, oh, but this guy, yeah, this guy who had this thing where he had solved Mulholland Drive, and then he kind of he solved. Bergman's persona. And, oh, I remember that too. There yeah. was a whole thread. Uh, Holland Drive is about Hollywood redheads. That's what it's about, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it? 
I mean, you make, Isn't some, it? <laughs> you make some very good points. Isn't it? <laughs> and then he, then he sold Bergman's persona, which is about abortion. Isn't it? Isn't it? I remember that line of questioning. Oh, God, yes. yeah, but it, it was all done in that sort of tone. This but, is what you're talking about, the internet and Mulholland Drive and solving Lynch sort of thing. Isn't yeah, it? exactly. And I think you know, Mulholland Drive was interesting. It came into the conversation at this point because it was at around this point that the internet really you know, kicked in and you know 2001 yeah. also we're moving towards even you know towards internet 2.0 or <laughs> 3.0 whatever the hell it was called but um anyway to get to the end of this this rambling idol about this guy who you can find i thought i thought <laughs> you wonder, i haven't heard from this guy for a while thank god did you did and you actually wow you went down the rabbit hole you searched for dr amp i went and looked him up and get this, that I, you know, I think there's an awful relief sometimes when you find that people who have very bad ideas in diverse fields. Donald, this is the first time it's only it's ever happened on this podcast. You're yeah. going to have to keep it down. When you're demanding, you've got a volume, you've got a volume control, you've got a volume control. But uh, anyway, do I? Have? What I was going to correct, was going to do far too slowly, was. I also find it reassuring when people who have really bad ideas and evil ideas in different spheres all tend to have the, all tend to have the same bad ideas, and different, all come together in the same person. And this guy, over the last year, has spent his time ranting about how great Tommy Robinson is. Oh! Yep. And Sorry, that was it, my, my turn to breach the, uh, the volume yeah. levels. So his recent tweets are all about, like... Um, is this the guy who thought that Mulholland yeah. Drive was a redhead? Yeah, he's uh, yeah. a clown. Yep, yep, yep. Brian Lloyd. <laughs> um, by the way, ladies and listeners, we, yeah. we're joined by Brian, Brian Lloyd and Jen Gannon. Thank you very much for joining Hello, us both. Hello, Brian and Jen. Um, this is live radio, so we're allowed to have crossover. Oh, you don't yeah, have to sit quietly yep, in the corner. Yep. You, and you'll have your five minutes longer when we get to our number one. <laughs> yeah, that's it, exactly. But that, is, but anyway, that was... That, the point of me bringing up this guy was, 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 was for that reason, to link it to the fact that Mulholland Drive came in at that point where people when were obsessed people with were suddenly yeah. you know which they had been maybe a, you know a, a little bit earlier with some, some of the earlier films but that's where it really got going um, and that guy who I haven't named is a classic example of, of, of that alright so your number one David Lynch film which My I suspect one... by process of elimination it's clearly the grandmother be? right <laughs> absolutely our Twin Peaks it? The Return the after alphabet that... the alphabet have you ever seen the alphabet I have not alphabet inspired... is, it's available on YouTube one of his second or third early short films which has got a kid reciting the alphabet it's while... inspired by a, a, a relative or yeah like that, whose child mother, said, I think yeah. it was some, some sense but um, no it's not the alphabet um, <laughs> the number one film is Eraserhead which I'm sorry I, I if you're a filmmaker and uh, Brian looks like he has something to add to this conversation. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I genuinely don't. No. no. Um, do you know, actually, no, do you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna do that again. I know we can't because we're live because I've forgotten, <laughs> of course, how you're supposed to do this in the kind of. At number ten, it's Dune. At number nine, it's Twin Peaks. Fire walk with me. At number eight, in with a bullet. It's Wild at Heart. At number seven. It's a quiet time. It's a straight story. <laughs> At number six, I don't know where, Lost Highway. <laughs> At number five, ooh, what's this about? Inland Empire. <laughs> At number four, Blue Velvet. At what? number three, <laughs> The Elephant Man. <laughs> At number two, Mulholland Drive. <laughs> At number one, Eraserhead. So yeah, that's what you want. That's what we wanted. Um, I, re- I, mean, I think Eraserhead, um, as we said earlier, in case there are two people who've joined us, I think I'm, I'm being more frivolous than usual this is a totally frivolous list it's all nonsense the only thing we know is that I'm glad you said the that. only thing we know for certain is that June is at number 10 that's the only <laughs> that's thing, the only thing fair, we, yeah, we fair, only know yeah, for certain fair, yeah. uh, but um, Eraserhead yes it does I, I think it uh, Eraserhead's a perfect film it's um, uh, a film that came out of nowhere that gained a kind of traction in American culture that seems remarkable now at the time cult cinema midnight movie cinema was already an established thing and had been since the late 1960s. But nothing quite so avant-garde had connected with that midnight movie crowd quite so much as Eraserhead. Um, and it's, it's, oh, it's impressive that something that took so long to develop arrives a fully formed aesthetic in the sense that any point after that, after Eraserhead stuck in with the consciousness, you could, if you saw a film that's like Eraserhead, you could say, it's like Eraserhead. And you knew what that meant. Um, it also, I mean, everything was in place at that point. 
the weirdness obviously was in place, the obsession with the darker parts of the subconscious, but also the kind of sweetness in it as well. I mean, you know, Jack Nance in that film, you know, he's actually a kind of, well, I wouldn't say warm, nothing about the film is warm, but he's kind of a sweet character who's being kind of knocked left, right and centre by the unpleasantness of the universe. And those are things I think that stuck with um, uh, uh, with David Lynch throughout his career. My own personal memory of, of, of as I say, was I can remember um, being familiar with all the imagery before I actually saw the film. We had in our rooms in university, we had a huge poster of the French issue of Eraserhead, Le Film Choc, as, uh, <laughs> as, as he described it uh, on our wall. Um, and I felt like I knew it from people talking about the baby and um, you know, this, woman that, and the, the other woman, the radiator, that. before yeah. I saw it, which uh, would have been this was 81 or 82 in the Film Society in Trinity College. Um, and... Uh, uh, and nonetheless, by having been introduced to it via, you know, by by other bits of popular culture, it still kind of stuck with me in a way that was extraordinarily impressive and has done ever since. So, number one, a race red, and that's the end of our <laughs> utterly facetious, um, dumbed down part of the podcast. <laughs> I was about to say, um, just before you go, we have a question that we're asking all of our guests, yes. uh, and you, and it's great because you've already talked about how completely pointless this is. What is Twin Peaks: The Return about for you, Donald? Oh, well, I, I mean, if I had an answer to that question, then it wouldn't be worth making the series. That's That's, that's I think, <laughs> Darren, the point. Darren asked that's so diplomatic. <laughs> Entirely pro forma. <laughs> <laughs> there has to be one sense of structure on this thing, right? Yeah. Um, but thank you very much for joining us, Donald. No. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you so much.